0: Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash
1: work. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it.
0: This is Reasons to Be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
2: Hello, Happy Valentine's Day! We're recording this on Valentine's Day. I, I can mean, think it's of the first time ever. I think. I think so. Yeah, I can think of nobody else apart from my wife yeah. that I'd like to be spending Valentine's Day with. It didn't go down very well with her that I was unavailable for. Did it not an, an, a romantic stroll Are on you Valentine's? Serious? Yeah, it's just a construct, though. Isn't everything, though? Isn't everything a construct and you're just trying to break your life up with these things? So exactly. Anyway, I'm very happy to be spending my Valentine's Day with you. Have you bought Sarah a valentine? Yes, I, b- I bought her a card and a box of chocolates. So, yeah, I've actually bought Justine a box
3: of chocolates. I'm rather impressed with myself. It doesn't say who it's from. Oh, did you? You did the yeah. whole
2: secret admirer thing? Yeah.
3: Well, it's only, I mean, it sort of arrived after she'd left for work. I mean, obviously, it wasn't wasn't that well organised. So she'll get it tonight. But I mean, at least it's sort of, you know.
2: And have you received a Valentine's card? No. No, and she'll
3: be rather appalled because she'll be like, well, I didn't get you one.
2: This is great. This is what these things are really about. One up up on the other person. Yeah, that is Moral
3: high ground. I thought thought it was moral high ground, actually. I
2: had had an idea of something we could do to raise money for charity. Go on. Well, did you see this Tracy Brabin off-the-shoulder dress that she was criticised for wearing in the House of Commons? And then then she auctioned it. 20 grand. Yeah. So what could you wear? in the house of commons that we could then auction for charity i mean honestly that brown suit that i used to have
3: (laughs) i mean honestly i think we might have given away the brown suit to to you know second hand clothes shop would you
2: consider wearing some very short shorts into the house of commons um next question all right Uh, we'll stick stick with the brown corduroy suit then i think the brown What, what what about you well, no one's going to buy any, Mike. I mean, sometimes oh, I like, see. donate close to the charity shop, and they pull a face and think. Oh, well, so sure. you're basically saying I should like go in for some
3: issue in the House of
2: Commons and then sort of wear something that that, that is kind of auctionable. Exactly. Yeah. Right. But we seem to. Have it would have them. to be the brown corduroy suit. Well, let, we could always ask for suggestions if you have a yeah. suggestion on what Ed okay, could that's wear a in good idea. House of Commons. Uh, then um, I mean, a
3: garland of flowers in my hair would definitely. Cause some sort of <laughs> remark.
2: Let, let's, let's see what we get back. Right. It's reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Uh, what are we talking about this week? So this week we're revisiting the four-day week, something as a subject close to your heart. I know. I mean, it'd be doubling my workload. Exactly. We first covered this
3: on an episode about 18 months ago. Since then, the four-day week has been adopted by companies around the world. Both the Finnish and indeed the Russian governments have indicated support for the idea – and it was in Labour's manifesto in last year's general election, (laughs) didn't go so well, I think it's fair to say, for for Labour in the election, not just in general, but also in the uh, relation to the four-day week. We're asking from what we can learn from that experience about how the four-day week played out in the election, exploring where we go next in building support for the idea. We're talking to Will Strong from Autonomy, a think tank examining the future of work, and Rachel Kay, who worked on the Lord Skidelsky Working Time Inquiry, and then... We're having friend of the pod coming back uh, to speak to us, uh, New Zealand business owner Andrew Barnes. Oh, he is great. He's great. Um, He's over in the UK because he's not only doing
2: the four-day week in Perpetual Guardian, his company, but he's uh, written a new book. About the four-day week. And then we've got a, a special treat for you as our cheerful person this week. One of the most famous really and well-respected broadcasters in the United States. I'm really excited about this. Rachel Maddow. Um, we're talking to her for Cheerful Book Club. MSNBC anchor. But we thought you'd you'd get a kick out of hearing her. Yeah, but it, it, well. it,
3: it, people are going to hear a sort of, you know… Uh, a snippet, a a, snippet, taster. a taster. And then if they want the full thing, they need to subscribe to Cheerful Book Club.
2: That's right. What's your reason to be
3: cheerful this week? Well, my reason to be cheerful is that I was on the tube, the London underground, uh, coming back from work. and I met a very nice woman called Fiona. And she said, I have just the vegan cookbook for your children. Oh. Now, which I have not yet got round to buying, but it's by somebody called Drina Burton. And Fiona has two boys who are eight and uh,
2: ten. She has a husband who's a flexitarian. Um, so that means, you know. Somebody who uh, is, isn't sort of slavishly eating meat with every meal and they're, they're sort of trying to be veggie or vegan when they can. Mixing it up. Yeah, mixing it up. Yep, And uh, – she um, recommended a book called Plant-Powered Families,
3: over 100 kid-tested whole food vegan recipes. I, actually, I mean, I am – Justine laughs about this, laughs a bit, and I think, you know, doesn't laugh a bit. I'm very good at buying cookbooks. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I've, been,
3: I've been banned from buying, bringing any, any more cookbooks into the house. I'm very good buying cookbooks, right, particularly yeah. one with nice pictures of you. Yeah, food. Yeah, I'm the same. So My just, ratio, though, yeah. I would say the ratio of – the recipes yeah to the cookbooks i mean it's like literally probably an average of less than one
2: recipe per cookbook i think we got cookbooks down there that have never been opened but she's put a moratorium on by i cookbooks. love a good cookbook don't you yeah but i mean it's not the cooking of it it's just like looking at the book thinking oh, i'd like to you know do that mm. but it's aspirational do you think it is aspirational? i think it is aspirational but no, no th- i think this is the one that's going to change your life right okay what's your reason to be cheerful went to see parasite
3: Yes, I'm yeah. very excited to see it,
2: which uh, I I enjoyed immensely. Of course, it yeah. just won Best Picture yeah. at the Oscars. Yeah, did it's... you go be before or after the Oscars? I went after. I had right. intended to go and see. Did you see the film *Octor?* Which was his last film which he co-wrote with John Ronson. Oh, it's yes, on your Netflix. friend John Ronson. Yeah, and uh it's 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 really good if you can't get out of your house to go to the pictures yeah. at the moment. Yeah. Uh I'm not saying you're housebound. Yeah. I'm just saying, you know, yeah. you're a, you're a busy guy finding yeah. the time to go on yeah. a date. Yeah. Uh that's that's uh, that's very good as well. I loved that. And this one, I think it's, Do you it's deserve just in it? a, Oh yeah, it's in a league of its own. Pe- it's people people feel like the academy awards sort of surpass themselves their general sort of Th- th- I think thing. it was thought of as a yeah. good one, wasn't it? The on- the only downside there was a man with a very thick head in the seat in front of me. <laughs> sort of like it's a Steve McFadden type head. So I had to move seats. A thick head. Yeah, you know, like a very wide neck. Right.
3: I I, I- I'm sort of beginning to sort of put two and two together here and think <laughs> you're quite a difficult person to go to the cinema with because you I mean it's not so much that you're observant, it's more that you're sort of you don't, you're you're, you perhaps you're sort of somewhat generally repressed mis, misanthropic is that the right word side right think like it really comes out in well, the it cinema it, it, yeah. you, it's quite a lot of sort of finger pointing and blame blame, blame <laughs> culture in relation to the other audience goers. i really
2: enjoyed going to the cinema but you
3: just don't want it disrupted by thick heads people eating popcorn <laughs> uh, any other sort of children
2: with coughs children with coughs yeah,
3: yeah,
0: yeah. reasons to be cheerful with ed milliband and jeff lloyd we're joint by an
3: incredibly cheerful person, Andrew Barnes. He's the founder of Perpetual Guardian, the author of the book The Four-Day Week, but he hasn't just written a book about it. As people will know from a previous episode of our podcast in October 2018, he's doing it in his company, Perpetual Guardian. And he's come over, and in fact, he's going around the world proselytizing about this issue. (laughs) Andrew, you're very welcome (laughs) in Jeff's attic. (laughs) Thank you, (laughs) just for those of those people without an encyclopedic knowledge of our previous episodes, although you know, I think our listeners are pretty encyclopedic, aren't they? I, I think so.
2: But also, things have moved on for you. Things have moved they have, on. They have. Yeah. Yeah. But
3: just, just remind us. Just do a little flashback. Remind us. Just sort of how this is all this kind of whirlwind magical mystery tour
4: that you're now embarked on has come about. Well, look, it started uh, on a plane. It started on a plane, and I read an article in The Economist that said that people were only productive for a couple of hours a day. And I thought, why was that? Was that happening in my business? And so I literally started out with an experiment. And I said to my staff, look, i have got this wild idea. I'll pay you for five days. You only have to work for four, provided I get the same level of productivity. And uh, we trialed it for a couple of months And what we found is that all our engagement scores went up by 40 percent, our stress levels dropped by 15 percent, and the productivity went up. Um, And I thought, well, this is is pretty good. Uh, And so after that, I started to think, well, maybe there's a better way. And so since we went permanent in the company on the four-day week in November 2018, I've now been traveling the world. The stories run in, I'm told, 80 countries now, uh, talking about the four-day week and why I think it's a, a real
2: solution for the future. And there was no sort of novelty component to the trial. That, that That's been, y- your long-term findings are consistent with what you found in that trial. Yeah, and more
4: to the point, whenever you find companies around the world that are doing this, they all are delivering the same sort of results. You're seeing productivity improvements between 20 and 40 percent, and that's broadly consistent. Give us the to be simplistic, give us this sort of elevator pitch
3: for the four-day week.
4: Well, it's, it, it works on a very simple thesis. It's what we call the 180-100 rule. 100% pay, 80% of the time, provided you get 100% productivity. It's bottom-up driven, so staff opt into the scheme. So what you're really saying to them is, you know, what's more important to you? Delivering productivity in four days so you can get a day off, or... Doing all of that fabulous busyness stuff that we do in the office or maybe the chats or the internet surfing. Or yeah,
3: I
2: remember you mentioned that last time. All of l- that sort of stuff.
4: That's exactly right. Doing all that. Of that spoke
2: a lot to Jeff, really.
4: Yeah, it did. Yeah, I, I can <laughs> see. I'm really, do like, squandering my time on other people's time. <laughs> well, if you think about it, you know, if this thesis was right, that three hours a day is broad, true productivity, you only have to find 45 minutes of additional productivity right. in each of the four days to make up for the lost day. Tell us what's the response that you've had um, going around sort of selling this message to, to, to others. Uh, it's been mixed. I have to say in the States, it's a, it's a pretty hard sell in yeah. a country where, you know, 60 hours a week sometimes is, yeah. is, is, the norm, but possibly the most surprising one for us was Russia where we got name-checked as we crossed the border. We were driving from Peking to Paris, and we got name-checked by the Prime Minister of Russia, who said, I've seen the trial, I've seen what Andrew Barnes is doing in New Zealand, it's the future for Russia. We came into Novosibirsk, there were TV crews from Moscow, and then when we left the country about four weeks later, uh, the Russian Parliament announced that they were drafting legislation to bring in a four-day week. Well, now let's talk about the... um
3: General election here and sort of the experience on the four day weekend. You'll have obviously followed this from from New Zealand. Um it, it it sort of Labour kind of fell into this slightly because it was set as a sort of ten-year objective in the manifesto. It then kind of came up against a sort of a bit of confusion when it came to the National Health Service. Boris Johnson called it a crackpot plan. What do you think we should learn? From that experience, what was your, what were your observations?
4: Well, first of all, it should never, ever be legislated unless you're in a planned economy like Russia. What you've got to do is you've got to leave with the productivity aspect because the natural reaction for every business, every director, every leader in the company and my own leadership team thought I was nuts – you have to lead with the productivity side. And there is now enough evidence out there, the, the most recent being the Microsoft Japan trial, 39.9% improvement in productivity going to a four-day week. Well, You know, if you lead with productivity, first of all, you're saying to companies, this is an employee benefit that costs you absolutely nothing. And then you can move into the key social areas which address health, the environment, education, uh, certainly you know a specific two around uh, your mental health, and then gender pay, and all of these things get addressed with the four-day week. So you can then have a very informed discussion, which then should make sense to people. If it's not going to be legislated for, how do how are we going to move towards it? What I mean by not legislated for, I mean I think employment legislation has to be crafted so it can permit it, but you shouldn't mandate that every company moves to a four-day week because what works for me doesn't necessarily work for you. And but okay, what about this to be devil's advocate? We got a five-day week not from
3: voluntarism, but from legislation.
4: Mm. Are we going to get there through voluntarism? One of the problems, especially if you want to address things like gender pay, it's all well and good trying to pull every push everybody up. At some point, you've got to be able to make it okay for people to work less. That's the key point and and the way I look at this is if I can encourage bosses to realize right that if they introduce this policy, they do it themselves. It's in their self-interest. Key, and do it themselves. Suddenly you make it okay. And I think if you look back in history, you're right; it did get legislated. But there are leaders who, actually, the, the model villages, the the, the Cadburys and etc., who actually introduced better working conditions first, demonstrated it didn't do them right. any harm, and that then led to the broader movement. I mean, I believe that you have to start to look in the macro this impacts so many different levels, you've got to say, well, actually, if you imagine a society where people are working less, producing more, but then having more time to be fit, to volunteer, to be part of a community, you know, to re-educate themselves, what's wrong with that? And what would actually happen to... You know, in, again, in New Zealand, we've just tipped billions into the health service to deal with mental health. Yeah. Why? Because we're overworking. One in five of the workforce at any point in time has a stress or mental health problem. Talk to us about the um,
3: climate emergency in this context because you've been thinking a, a lot about that.
4: Yeah, well, well, if you look across most countries, um, emissions from transport are probably one of the biggest single... Uh, producers of of, of, uh, of carbon emissions. If you did in the United States, that would be the equivalent of taking 10.5 million cars off the road every year. But remember, what also happens is that you don't have as much congestion. So congestion produces an awful lot of carbon emissions. It's also, by the way, a big driver of stress. So if you can eliminate congestion, not only do you then produce... You know, in Auckland's terms, we would put 2% on Auckland's GDP if we could get traffic to free flow. What do people do with the rest of the time they have off, though? Well, actually, interestingly, all the evidence suggests they yeah. do low-carbon activities as well. It is a thing. Most people try and eventually spend more time with the family. Yeah, And and, and I, I'll tell this story. That I have a chap in one of my offices, and he is about my age, but he has a, a granddaughter. And what he does is he, he takes two afternoons off a week. So he walks home. So he's getting fit because he does two afternoons home. His granddaughter comes round. She's quite young and they do little chores together around the house. So, again, low carbon footprint. At five o'clock, his daughter comes round and they have tea together. So that's giving a little bit of family cohesion. And when he tells the story, he cries. That's what this is about. It is about basically changing people's lives, giving them something they can't buy. And that's so important that that's why they deliver the productivity, because they want to make sure that deal is maintained. But it fundamentally changes the lives of families and communities. And, you know, I, I look at some of the stuff that I've done over the years. And the reason I am traveling the world now talking about it is this is the best thing I've ever done. You don't well, get many chances to change the world, and this happens to be mine. I'm, 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 I'm in. I, I find yeah, you
2: so inspiring. You're to totally talk to. yeah. you totally compelling.
3: You, know. I mean, I hope. I hope you can just spend as little time as possible running your company and just keep going <laughs> around the world
4: advocating this. Just before we finish, what's your what's your sort of plan on this now? Yeah, yeah. Well, we are creating um, a global academic uh, network why we're doing that is we need to get research we need research which convinces companies that it's safe to implement this it's then nobody gets fired for buying ibm concept if you've got good research that proves that productivity goes up it's safer for me to introduce it and then what we're also then doing also on a uh, Not for profit basis is we're building up a network of consultants so they can help companies around the world. Because my problem is, is that that you know my partner Charlotte and I we can't talk to that many companies in as many jurisdictions as we're being asked to do. So the book addresses a bit of it, but the idea is let's make it easier for companies to do this, and and this is a great way. To address the big issues facing the world today. I mean, you know, it's the climate change. It's the impact of AI. It's mental health. It's family cohesion. It's just having time to be human. And this is what this is about. Andrew, the book is The Four Day Week. It's very, very
3: compelling. We wish you the best of luck with your incredible campaign. Thank you. So to talk further about um the four-day week where it goes from here uh, i'm delighted to say that we are joined by will strong who's director of autonomy a think tank working on the future of work and rachel k who was a researcher for the uh, report that lord Skidelsky, robert Skidelsky, did on working time thank you both for for joining us rachel why don't we start with the Skidelsky report which was commissioned by john mcdonald to look into these issues Tell us what it concluded on. Well, whether it was a good idea to shorten working hours, let's put it that way, and how you make it happen.
5: It concluded that definitely was a good idea, because from looking at history, we can see that um, there have been some radical changes in working time, um, which at the time have been seen as 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 problematic, especially by business. Um, but that then in in times to come, have actually been seen as really positive. So, for example, the the 1938 Holidays with Pay Act, which mandated that companies gave their workers one week of paid holiday, which now we would think is actually not very much, but at the time it was really controversial. So, um, the main message for the recommendations is that the state needs to be the main driver of working time reduction. So, firstly, the report recommends that the public sector should lead on working time reduction so bringing about a phased reduction in hours in the public sector through investing in um, automation and reorganising work practices and then spreading those gains throughout the public sector because obviously some parts of the public sector are not going to see the same productivity gains as as others.
3: And the key point about this just sort of before we turn to Will to sort of keep in mind I think I'm right in saying and you correct me if I'm wrong is that the history of this and presumably the future of this is productivity goes up and therefore you can work fewer hours for the same pay. In other words, in general, this is not a let's cut it, people's pay
5: yeah, idea. Yeah,
3: definitely. That, that's certainly been the history, isn't it?
5: Yeah, and that's always been what unions have, have fought for, um, is keeping the same pay um, but reducing hours, and that's definitely what our report would, would recommend. Well, let's
3: turn to you you've autonomy did did a report on on this also which I'd strongly r- recommend people read um, wh- what's your perspective on because I think there's general agreement it's, it's kind of a, a good thing to do if it's doable what's your, your, What's your general view about wh- how we go about the process mm. of achieving it
6: mm. so I think as Rachel already has said unions have a huge part to play and it's really encouraging that unions are kind of like waking up to this issue so obviously the the communication workers union are campaigning for shorter working hours in the postal service but also um i know that unite um certain aspects of unite are interested in the automation question and they 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 are strongly tying the the discourse around automation to to shorter working hours So that's really encouraging So in other words automation will have it yes but it's got to be tied to benefits for the workers precisely Yeah. yeah so like shared prosperity basically yeah so I think union should be campaigning on this, and I th- I'm glad to see that they're, they're, they're doing more of that. Um, I do think the private sector has a part to play here. You know, at Autonomy, we run like a kind of trial service for companies. Um, and how's that
3: gone for the couple of companies? Well,
6: so our first client, um, they didn't want to go public until a few months yeah. after we finished, and the Telegraph covered it uh, two weeks ago incredibly right. positively. To some extent, I was waiting for the negative. But- yeah, what's the, what is the client? Uh, they're called Big Potato Games, right? Um, and they make uh, board games in Shoreditch. Um, and how many of them are there? So there's twenty in that company, roughly r- around twenty. And there's like a design team, there's a kind of a sales team, a warehousing team, and it's so. worked. Yes, and they're they keep they keeping it. But I think what's important about the private sector and businesses is that you need to point to examples and say, yeah, you know, people often say, well, you know, this will never catch on. Yeah. Or I can't work in my sector, and it's well, actually. You know, we we can point to a number of different companies, and we're creating a kind of a business network of those that do. So I think strategically, it's it's really important to be able to point to those. And then finally, uh, and this is the reason why I left it till last, is because Rachel's already talked about. It. I think the state needs to be heavily yeah. involved. So you know, in the report you mentioned, we we talked about setting up an organisation called something like Automation UK, where we can get business unions um, around the table to how to how do we deploy these technologies coming into the marketplace.
3: Let's talk about this question of if it's such a good idea why did it go so badly uh, uh, in the election. I mean it, it, I don't know whether you think that's the right perspective just but both of you tell us what's your um what's your perspective on the way this was discussed in the election and why it didn't seem to go so well.
5: The first thing to say is that it was picked up by the media um as or some of the media as something that would happen immediately. Which actually, it wasn't. That wasn't how it was discussed in the manifesto. It was meant to be something that was phased in over ten years and quite gradual. Yeah. If you think about the the rough average of working hours and for full time people in the workers in the UK, forty two hours, and then moving to thirty two hours over ten years, sort of an hour a year. Um. So actually, that that seems quite gradual. Actually, um, there was no
3: process proposed in the manifesto, was there? There was just it should be a long term yeah, aim.
5: Yeah, I think. I think it was partly that and partly also, I mean, something useful I think for me to learn was that people actually in a, in a country where a lot of people are really struggling to get by. Yes. um, Yes. That's, I mean, and this is something that we found out in the process of researching the report anyway, but um, working time reduction is not their priority. And obviously the Labour Party said, well, this is going to be part of a wider, it sounds um, like
3: pie in the sky, doesn't it? The yeah. danger is, it sounds yeah. like pie in the sky. And
5: people are worried, I think, that the things that were the most important to them, which, you know, if you're struggling economically, you want to be paid more, you don't want yeah. to have shorter yeah. hours, even if you keep the same wage. Um, so actually, the people really didn't think that that was the most important thing, and they were thinking, well, why is this in a manifesto when we're in such a bad situation as a country? Um, so I think that is an, an important point that um, actually countries that are you know have more equality and less low paid work are going to be more receptive
6: i think for me there's yeah two things i think slightly more con, like slightly more yeah. specific but i actually agree with everything yeah. which was just said but i think there's two things i think there wasn't coherence in the party so i think as you say some yeah. politicians are saying we're not going to have this yeah. nhs and then john mcdonald would say actually yeah. yes we uh, we are yeah. um and I think that created mixed messages and allowed it to be kind of picked off. I think to some extent the policy was left out in the wind. And then the final thing I think which is important, and this is exactly where it was attacked, was it wasn't costed in the public sector. And so yeah. we at Autonomy have done the costing in the public sector, but we only did it after the fact that it started getting attacked. Right. Um, so this is, as you say, in the manifesto, it was simply uh, quite a vague transition plan. But when we costed it, it was much less than what um, you know, the CPS or the Conservative Party had costed it at. It was a fraction of the cost. But I think... There were some simple steps that could have been taken to um, kind of buttress it like the other policies.
3: I mean, it's also, isn't it, what's the theory of change here? How is it going to come about? And I think both of you have given quite subtle um, accounts of how this can come about. And I suspect the Labour Manifesto was meant to be, you know, there was subtle thinking behind it, but it came across as more... It's just going to happen and government's going to make it happen. And that looks implausible for people and also out of sync with what people are yeah. concerned about. I mean, I, having done some reading about this recently, actually one f- fact which you may find fascinating or not. you know what, Do you know why football matches are at three o'clock in the afternoon on a Saturday? I don't. It's because of the 1850 Factory Act mandating that the factories would finish at 2 p.m.
0: Is that
2: right? Yes.
0: Yeah.
3: And it was sort of to create... There was this thing called Saint Monday, which was basically a day off, a kind of a kind of non-mandatory kind of anarchic day off that people would have. But they'd just be so exhausted by the end of the week. And it was partly to get rid of Saint Monday that they were <laughs> given half a day uh, on Saturdays. Anyway, that's why football. But the, the question I was going to ask rather than that sort of historical digression was this is a rather technical point. But it sort of brought back my kind of economic uh maybe call it training um the gains that were made historically were in manufacturing and it's easy to see how you go from in the pin factory you know making it 100 pins an hour to 200 and you can raise productivity in services, and this is a point strong point strongly made in the Skidelsky report. In services, it's much more complicated. This guy called William Baumol, Baumol uh, came up with this thing called the cost disease problem, as he called it, and that enriched the, the limits You know, if you think about teaching or even retail, maybe or lots of you know, care services yeah. for elderly people. It's not about accelerating care for elderly people or doing twice as much of it in half the time. That's not what you want. So do you want to just say something about that and the extent to which that
5: imposes limits here? Yeah, I think the first thing to say is that actually we we probably do need to rethink how we measure productivity because our current measures are based on exactly the economy you described, which was manufacturing and, and production lines and yeah i think there is space for productivity gains uh, but it's a bit harder to see so a uh, think tank uh called the institute for public policy research has done a bit of of work on this looking at how for example in social care you can use automation uh, automation technologies to automate uh, schedules for for carers um so that that doesn't have to be done um manually and that would actually help to save a lot of time right but the question is you know would it be enough time to actually make a difference a major difference i mean in in the the end presumably
3: you've got to find productivity gains across the economy as a whole and use it to if you're going to pay people the same yeah for fewer hours use it to fund services for example is that is that basically
6: right i mean i think there's a number of ways going about this i would reiterate Rachel's point about how do you measure um, yeah. Um, yeah yeah productivity. But I guess I think the point you're you're alluding to is how does the state intervene here? So talking about subsidizing, um that we could think of plans, for example, to um subsidize transitions to four day weeks and first movers get these subsidies and that can become an incentive for other companies to kind of get on that um kind of uh gravy train of subsidies such that after a while the economy bounces out. You know, 40-week firms get subsidies, but once everyone's a 40-week firm, there's no more, there's no more, um, kind of, uh, tax breaks given to them, for example. I mean, this is, that was a sketch of a plan, but that's an industrial strategy, which I think obviously we don't have right now, but that's something which we want to look into, particularly at autonomy.
3: Just on terms of the lessons of the past, um, about how this happened, it was the state taking action, unions. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're the two big drivers. Is that correct? I'm just trying to think about how the yeah. past relates to the future. And I mean, so you need action by the state, but but power is important too, isn't it? Mm. Power in the workplace. And in Will's report, it's kind of, and I know some of this is contested because you've got to take account of women and men and, and so on, but it seems like you know, everyone talks in Britain about productivity falling off a cliff, but but the working hours stopped falling even as productivity was quite high. Mm. So it feels like power in the workplace is part mm, of it
5: yeah i think that's a really important lesson to learn from history um is that although productivity gains do enable working time reduction to happen without loss in pay actually it's it's really about this power balance between the employer and the employee
2: so how do i not feel depressed about this if i think the the state uh, the current government don't seem like they'd have much appetite for this and the unions are Sort of weakened in this country, how, how how do we defibrillate this idea after after the election?
3: Good 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 metaphor.
6: Defibrillate. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, there's work to be done. Um, you know, it's important. You're to, the defibrillating duo, yes. the two of you. <laughs> yeah, just, 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 Rachel and I are going to solve this problem exactly. Um, Rachel you and will the defibrillators. <laughs> I mean, I think outside of electoral cycles, there is fine. Trade union power needs to be um, increased, and this, but it's not just about increasing trade union power. It's also about introducing this idea into all of you know into into the discussion. And every time we talk about work, and I'm glad that the TUC is is not for example, as one institution within the trade union movement is not backing down from working time. And that's really important. Um, but I think outside of also outside of the electoral cycle, I think much, much more public campaigning can be, can be done. So we're going to be pushing, um, a campaign called shorter working August. Um, so a kind of, there's already a bank holiday in August. We're going to encourage all the four day week firms currently in the UK to shout about it, you know, to kind of give it some publicity, but also encourage one or two large employers to, to uh, kind of get on that just for the month um, and kind of have that year and year, like every year we're going to run short of working August. As and a what career. is it?
2: You finish early on a Friday? Well, I think
6: you can take it either way. So it could be 32 hours across five days or just a four day, four day week. Yeah. There's a nice fringe stuff you can do around that. So you can, for example, get the, you know, large, um, large pub chains to do drinks deals on Thursday nights Um all this kind of stuff. I think small little campaigns like that, can grow and ultimately it can great, raise an awareness, just like Jeans for Jeans Day or, you know, McMillan cake sale, I think. The yeah. January, Exactly, exactly. Everyone loves a month uh, yeah. theme, right? And I think, <laughs> yeah. you know, we're, we're considering what kind of... It needs a phrase. Well, here we go. Ready? Go on. Wait, so, short shorter working August, tagline is, summer is coming. Mm. Like like you know, winter is coming. Winter is coming. coming. Yeah, yeah. Um, This is that's. It's just a sketch. But we'll. I think um, there's a lot to be done outside. Half day August. (laughs) Sorry, I won't give up the day job.
3: Uh, uh, I think yes. Come on, we need a good phrase. I mean, mean, shorter working August. Will it doesn't quite do it for me. You don't
2: like summer is coming. I think that's because it's going over my head, right? It's this Game of Thrones thing. Yeah, I know. It just yeah. went over my head. Well, well, we we would happily pass on suggestions if they come Abracadabra in by August. Yeah, uh.
3: <laughs> as as you said before, I think. Yeah, maybe yeah. you should give up the day job. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, uh, Rachel Gorm, uh, you're part of the defibrillating duo. What 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 was Give us some reasons to be sort of to think this is not dead in the water.
5: Yeah, well, another thing I think is, is looking to other countries which maybe have more favourable governments. That's very encouraging. So, actually, Will's think tank um, did a report for the Valencian regional government in Spain, which um, is now planning to trial a four-day week in the public sector, right? Really? Um,
6: yeah, so, I mean, this was literally like a, um, four days ago. What? Um So, the Valencian government came to us. Um, they found us through various means, and then they yeah. said we wanted to like, think about a working time strategy for the region. So the, that's the east coast of Spain. So can happen? Um, so if you want to go to Alicante and Benidorm, we do four day weeks. Um, we do definitely. Oh, so did yeah. yeah. so picked up. But yeah, How do do you think like, I'd get on in Benidorm for a just, working holiday. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's 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 exciting. It's an exciting uh, moment because it was covered by the national Spanish press. Apparently, trade unions are quite interested there. Those from outside of the Venetian region, that is. Um, so that's a really good. That's a really. Um, Good example of a kind of like a municipality or, or a regional government kind of taking these ideas up and we expect that to spread. And in fact, it's part of our defibrillating process to actually spread that around Europe as well. So we know uh, other municipalities are kind of interested.
3: Rachel, isn't the point you make also sort of and will, sort of fundamental to this, which is you know, people are overstressed at work. Lot there's the, the evidence is that lots of younger workers, not just younger workers want more of a balance of leisure and work yeah. uh, you know and businesses are i mean you know, businesses aren't going to take us all the way to what we need but businesses are going to be do, just do it big potato perpetual guardian you know, a lot of them are just starting to do it aren't they and, and that so therefore it's not going to go away
6: the moral of the story is as, as rachel was basically implying yeah. is that working time was an issue way before this last election and it's going to be an issue way into the future and so you know it's even you know the short like the uh, working hours was in chapter 10 of marx's capital it was an issue from from day one of industrialism shortening the working hours and giving ourselves more time and freedom and that's taken different forms of that struggle that that kind of movement has taken different forms and one election cycle is not going to end that
2: so so in our utopia the jeffocracy we put you jointly in charge of the ministry of work um what is the 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 idea is defibrillated uh what is the first thing you do to implement the four-day working week i think the first thing to do is is do like a sector by sector region by region
6: analysis which sectors um are for example more appropriate in terms of you know looking at firm profitability all this kind of stuff so you do a breakdown of all the sectors and you start doing bespoke you know kind of producing bespoke strategies for sectors the truck drivers the hairdressers the etc and i think that needs to have that large scale industrial strategy because as i think we've been talking about really there's no one size fits all for all industries i think we start with a very concrete plan we want to create a effectively a you know a business outreach program to kind of you know s- source best practice things like that so learn from the public sector but at scale don't just let think tanks like autonomy do it have a state program to do that and I think, as I said, we create an organisation to kind of manage the deployment of, of, of automation technologies into different workplaces.
2: Rachel?
5: Yeah, um, I think as well as looking at the existing situation in different sectors, I'd also want to shift the, um, the shape of the labour market. So my favourite policy is one which was suggested by Labour, but in their manifesto, but not really connected to working hours in the manifesto, which is the green industrial revolution. So basically investment in green jobs for example renewable energy or retrofitting homes to be more energy efficient that kind of thing um and that the jobs would be secure and unionized and well paid and would also include training so with with that investment you could move people out of insecure work um because it includes training and also potentially out of um you know fossil fuel industries I forgot to say yeah. the main point of that, connecting it to working hours, is that the jobs would be on shorter working hours. So that would set a standard for the rest of the economy. That was kind of the central point.
3: So we just need a, na- a snappy name. Yeah. And you're, you're looking at me as if to say you're not going to come up with this. No, it we, we,
2: need, we need to throw this out to uh, the Cheerful listenership. Suggestions, <laughs> please, through cheerfulpodcast.com.
3: Rachel and Will, thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you. you very much. You've got Let the, the job.
2: So what do you think? since the last time we talked about this idea i've been a convert i think it's it's, a natural
3: one for you isn't it yes it is yeah yeah it's a bit long it's a bit too many days but yes but you know i I like my work-life balance Um, i
2: don't think i should shame you for that but i think you're right thank you yeah um and it it was disappointing to think that this idea might have fallen away with everything else at the last election And and it's kind of Difficult, as we said, if the state and the unions are the big drivers behind yeah. this, yeah. Uh, seeing those things happening anytime soon isn't, you know, isn't very easy. But at the same time, I do think there's something quite inspiring about getting business leaders. With pound signs in their eyes, thinking about the productivity, yeah, yeah. and then um, Definitely. it becoming a competitive aspect in where people want to work. If it's offered as a benefit at one company, then other companies are going to start. Having I mean, to offer I it. think I think the things I learned: good ideas don't just die, you know. Because uh, and
3: and the, ever since that episode we did, where you realise that we used to work an average of sixty something hours, you realise this is just you know the. 38-hour, 40-hour, whatever it is, week is just a a construct. Um, We know that people want – some people or a significant number of people want less stress at work, and and if they could get the same pay for less hours, you know, what's not to like about that? We know there are companies like Perpetual Guardian, and Andrew spoke very eloquently to that, who think it does work.
2: We need to clone Andrew and send him to be every business leader in the world. And I don't think it's going away.
0: Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about Work.
3: If you've got thoughts, do email us, cheerfulpodcast.com. You can find all the details. Lynn Barron got in touch with us. Lynn Barron, come on down. My mother-in-law. Jeff's mother-in-law. As a regular walker for many years, I want to tell Ed and Jeff thanks Lynn, how much I loved the episode about benefits of walking. I am a true believer. The guests were very interesting and their ideas for the Jeff Oxy were excellent. This episode was one of my favourites. I'm a big fan of the podcast, if not my son-in-law. No, she does not say that. On occasion. Now, this is bad. On occasion, Jeff
2: has made fun of me about my walking, which admittedly borders on a compulsion. I was going to say she walks compulsively perhaps, when it's bad perhaps, weather. When it's bad weather, her and her husband go walking in the shopping precinct in the mall.
3: Perhaps his teasing will now stop.
2: I invite Jeff and Ed and his team to Chicago, and I'll take you on
3: long, beautiful walks along our gorgeous lakeshore, interesting, diverse neighbours and magnificent architecture. You've been
2: walk shaming, Lynn Baron. <laughs>
3: It's, i mean that is bad particularly as you boast about your own walking
2: no i mean lynn baron's she not
3: had no her an apology
2: And I owe her a walk is probably right. okay. what i owe her. did she not use it as an op at the email as an opportunity to plug her daughter's show at the soho theater she didn't know it's very remiss of her yeah yeah march the 9th the 21st sarah Barron. yeah closer yeah um it's very good. This comes from Michael Hemming, who says Hi, Ed and Jeff. I've been listening to your show every week on my roughly 40 minute walk to work in Sydney, Australia. Oh, Sydney. I particularly like your episodes on climate change, activism, and more recently, walking. I often fantasise on my walks how, if I was a supreme leader, so this would be the mycocracy, um, I could improve my local area with regards to walkability, reducing traffic, and becoming greener. As a result, I am now determined to write a letter to my council with a list of suggestions on how I think the area could be improved, inspired by some of the ideas on your show. Your podcasts are a reminder that we should all try to do something to make a difference, even if just on a local scale. And we've had loads of responses
3: on walking. Please keep your suggestions, your ideas coming, and also where you're listening
2: from. We could go on a cheerful walk. What would that involve? You know, me and I'm, I'm seeing us very much like Moses uh, with everyone behind us. Oh, I mean, right. Leading them, I don't know if, into the promises. I lands. thought you meant with our promises pledged in stone. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcasts. Or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast.
2: In the Cheerful People Spot this week, we are extremely excited to be able to share with you an excerpt from the next Cheerful Book Club with Vintage. It's one of America's foremost broadcasters. Uh, she's beloved. The, uh, my extended family are all incredibly excited that she's a guest on this week's podcast and on the book club. Uh, do you want to tell us about the book? The book is Blowout. It's a New York Times bestseller, corrupted democracy, rogue state Russia,
3: and the richest, most destructive industry on earth.
1: The author is Rachel Maddow. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. I am so happy that you guys asked me to join you. Thank you so much for having me. You studied, uh, I I didn't know this, I confess, you studied at Oxford and did did a a PhD on
3: HIV AIDS and the prison system. What what are your memories of of studying in Oxford and being in the UK?
1: You have done your research. There are very few people who, I mean, (laughs) some people know the Oxford thing. Definitely very few people know the title of my thesis. It's the first question (laughs) I asked. It's the first
3: question I asked. What was it about? (laughs)
1: Um, I – you know, I'm not sure that I would have gone to graduate school at all um, had I not won a scholarship that allowed me to go to Oxford, which was completely sort of beyond anything that I had planned. Um, And I applied to the MPhil, the master's program, and then after like maybe 24 hours at Oxford, decided to transfer to the doctoral program and did the doctorate – in a way that I probably didn't deserve to do. I was over my head for most of the time that I was that I was studying. But I had a great thesis advisor, and Lucia uh, I Zedner. picked my college. Lucia Zedner, thank yeah. you very much. Um, this is your life. <laughs> um, I went to Lincoln College because I was advised that they had the best food, which was absolutely true and is a totally reasonable way
2: to choose your college. Very much so. <laughs> Did you acquire a taste um, for anything British while you were here? Did you try Marmite?
1: I had Marmite for breakfast this very morning before coming here to speak wow. to you. Wow! It it has stuck with me, and in the book, there is a little sidebar story about a failed British effort to do fracking using Marmite as part of the fracking fluid, yes. which is only in there because of my devotion to Marmite, <laughs> which I learned at Oxford.
3: <laughs> now let's talk about your your book. Uh, it's a it's a it's a absolutely fascinating sort of expose, not just of the oil and gas industry, but but the effect it has on on states. Just, just for our listeners, tell us a little bit about the main argument, and perhaps what 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 motivated you to write the book.
1: You know, I have spent an inordinate amount of time since the twenty sixteen election reporting here in the U.S. on the Russian interference effort and the implications that has for this strange presidency that we've been having ever since. And in covering that story closely, I found that the place where I was really stuck was figuring out Russia's rational motivation. Um, It just seemed to me like they were taking an incredible risk because as far as we can tell, they, like everyone, believed that Hillary Clinton was going to win the 2016 election. Um, And so taking this sort of wild swing at her and at the U.S. government – by interfering in this way where they didn't even really bother to cover their tracks at all, seemed to me like a very high-risk maneuver for the Russian government. Hillary Clinton was already a Russia hawk coming in. Had she been president with Putin having taken these shots at her, who knows what she would have done in terms of U.S.-Russian relations and confrontation. So that risk seemed so high. It made me start to look for what reward they could have been seeking – that would have created a, a ratio that made that action make sense. And where I ended up at um, just in trying to figure that out was in looking at the Russian economy and this situation that they're in, which I think is underappreciated in the West, which is that they are a you know, gigantic country with a huge population and a ton of potential and a ton of resources. And they have an economy you know, smaller than Italy's. And the um, bad economic choices – that Putin has made have been rational in in the sense that they have maximized and concentrated his power, but they've also made it made Russia essentially a petrostate um, that needs the access that needs access to Western oil majors in order to continue to produce for the one economic asset that they have as a country. The influence of Western oil majors in Russia, I think, is something that the oil industry ought to account for. And I think we also ought to appreciate that oil and gas tends to ruin governance everywhere they operate, almost everywhere they operate. And that those geopolitical consequences
2: to me are interesting. I wondered if you could give us a picture of where you think we are in the democratic race at the moment.
1: We are in a big mess.
2: <laughs>
1: Is where I think we we are. are
2: too, Rachel, you know, actually.
1: <laughs> yes. It's, um, but, you know, that's it's democracy. It's the way it should be. I mean to have Michael Bloomberg competing, A, as a Democrat when he has been not a Democrat for a lot of his life, competing without um, putting his name on the ballot in any of the early states, spending hundreds of millions of dollars to the point where one wonders what else there is for him to buy. I mean that's (laughs) such a black box in the middle of the race. Um, To have Bernie Sanders running essentially the same campaign he ran in 2016 – without having expanded his base at all, and in fact with his base having sort of shrunk, but with there being so many other credible candidates in the race that even his shrunken support is larger than any of the ascendant candidates have been able to garner thus far. That's a really strange dynamic. To have Joe Biden, the former vice president, tanking uh, and uh, com- and broke while the establishment still insists that he's their guy, it is uh, – I don't. I have no. It's the most important Democratic presidential primary of my lifetime. I have absolutely no idea how it's going to work out. There is clearly extreme paranoia
3: among the Democratic establishment about Bernie Sanders winning the nomination on the grounds that he can't beat Trump. What, what, what do you think about that anxiety? I mean, you, you know, we you know the thesis. Our listeners will know the thesis. A self-declared socialist. Yada, yada, yada. You know, he can't possibly win.
1: That conventional wisdom feels too simplistic. What what do you think? Absolutely. It does feel too simplistic. I mean, first of all, in a two-party system and a a basically divided down the middle country, anybody who wins the nomination of one of the two major parties has a 50% chance of being the next president. Full stop second of all, anybody who tells you based on either polling or punditry that somebody is unelectable as the nominee of a major party missed 2016. <laughs> yeah. That said, on his own terms, Senator Sanders, his sort of theory of the case, of, of why he is electable um, and why he has a, a different path to victory than other more moderate candidates might have, but it's viable and he's still a safe choice. His His case is that he can He can get more people to vote than would otherwise vote. He can goose turnout, particularly among young voters. Well, it's a good argument in political science terms. But in Iowa, the first test of it, um, voter turnout was down. Voter turnout was – the record voter turnout was 2008 when Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were competing in the Democratic primary in 2016 – Iowa was way down. Um, and the numbers this year were along the line of 2016, which was to say way down. So that's the real problem with him, not something about his ideology or something about his presentation. I think we should ignore those things and look at the way he plans to win.
2: Did you, did you follow our, our general election at the end of last year? Didn't go you, so well. Do you see parallels with Jeremy Corbyn and Bernie Sanders?
1: You know, it's amazing the number of people who drew parallels between Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn un- until that election happened. <laughs> and then, once that election happened, everybody denied they had ever made such an allegory. Um, that was a very, you know, he was a very he was he was proudly claimed um, as the as the reflection or, uh, you know, the, the, the mirror image of Senator Sanders until until that de- defeat. But um, it, it's, I mean, it's. Uh, Every election is different. Every candidate is different. It's, it's – you know, I think it's hard for us here. It's hard for me not to still draw parallels between the original Brexit referendum and the, and the, and the Donald Trump Definitely. victory in November of 2016. It's hard, it's hard not to draw these parallels between our countries, but it's probably folly. I mean I'm, I'm a bad pundit anyway, but boy, have I learned humility over these, <laughs> over these last four years.
3: Well, look, Rachel Maddow, you make us cheerful. You do have a fantastic book out. Uh, It's Blowout. People should buy it. They can uh, watch you on MSNBC. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Ed and Jeff, thank you so, so much. It's such an honour to be with you guys today. Thank you. Reasons
0: to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd.
2: Oh, we're in the outro. We are in the outro. And do you remember that we asked, I think, last week or the week before – Um, where you listen to the podcast and what you're doing while you're listening to it. And we're we're sort of looking for exotic locations or activities or combination of the two. We received this one. It says, good day, Ed and Jeff. That may give you some clues to which part of the world it comes from. In relation to your request, let you know, where we're listening from, I just finished listening to the trade episode whilst vacuuming my swimming pool... Oh my God. ...in Sydney, Australia. Oh, my God. So says Chris Bowen, Shadow Minister for Health... Wow. ...at the Parliament of Australia. Chris Bowen, shout uh, out to you. of influence into Chris's swimming Definitely. pool. Definitely. Can
3: we come and have a swim?
2: Yes. Uh, yeah, that's great. It's exciting. So, Co- can you beat that, listeners? Yeah. And, you know, it, it doesn't, you could be doing something very exciting in uh, a seemingly mundane maybe location, we can, maybe or we can, the other way around. Maybe we can do a little
3: sort of Google Maps directions to work out how far we, how far it is from your house and see
2: whether anyone can beat it. This This is
3: good. I think it's 10,000 miles,
2: I'm reliably informed. So, we've gone from here to Sydney 10,000 miles. Yeah. Let's see if we can find the person furthest from Chris for next week's episode oh i like your style we'll stick
3: about that the furthest person from sydney
2: yeah mm. maybe we can find somebody listening in the north of finland or maybe we've got some icelandic listeners after oh, our episode good there. idea but yeah, let you've us done know this before have. let us let us know uh, where you are and what you're doing uh, email us through the website cheerfulpodcast.com should we thank our guests mm. i'd like to thank will strong rachel k and andrew barnes and thanks to Rachel Maddow. Now, you can hear the whole of that interview. Yes. i just give you a little teaser there. Tease. But you can hear the whole of that interview on this week's Cheerful Book Club, which is brought to you by Vintage. Um, it's on a separate feed, so if you look wherever you get your podcasts from, look for Cheerful Book Club. Make sure that you rate, subscribe review tell all your friends tell all your friends Emma Caution produces our podcast with backup and research from Joel Pierce and Joe Kenyon Gail Lofthouse is our announcer Ed Seed composed the music James Deacon made the eye dance. and the artwork was designed by Henry Cole he's been my Valentine he's been my Gooseberry and these have been Reasons to be Cheerful